guys. Um, <clears throat> let's give the band a round of applause just as a way of saying thank you um, for all that they do on a weekly basis. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be continuing through the Gospel of Mark tonight. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 21 uh, through 28 is what we're going to be looking at, or 34. Tw- sorry, no. Rewind, looking at the wrong thing in my notes. Mark chapter 1, verse 29 through 34. Um, now you guys know what the first uh, blank is on your sheet. If you uh, look in your chairs, you guys have the note sheets and pens. Um, we're going to be going through that tonight, so uh, be sure to fill in the blanks. Um, again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, and we're going to be starting in verse 29. You probably can find one. So tonight we are going to do a part two um, to uh, the series that we started last week um, about the king's authority. The reason that we're doing a part two, you'll see here in a minute, is that uh, Jesus uh, once again shows his authority in this passage. Um, But in addition to that, these two passages are linked. Um, They happened on the same day. And so so this is just a continuation of what happened uh, in the passage that we looked at last week. So with that said, um, let's look at the first few verses, uh, verse 29 uh, through 31. It says this, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So let me pray really quick before uh, we jump into the notes. Father, I I ask right now that you will place words in my mouth that will be helpful, um, that would bring light to... uh, the darkness that, God, you would um, give me the ability to articulate things that would bring, bring understanding um, to confusion. And I pray, Lord, that you will um, help this, uh, this night flow smoothly, uh, even though my mind is running a little bit slow. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you will allow this to be a message that um, hits all of our hearts in this room tonight um, in a special way. Uh, I feel like that there is a great hope um, in what we're about to look at and especially with the things that have been going on um, in a lot of different people's lives in this room, um, that uh, this passage just, I think, brings a lot of comfort and hope. So I pray that you will help me to communicate it well um, and that uh, the people in this room, including myself, would be drawn towards you um, and that our hearts would fall even more in love with you um, by the end of the night. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week, uh, to set the context, you remember that Jesus was in the synagogue, he was teaching, and a demon-possessed man comes in, and Jesus uh, proceeds to uh, to cast that demon out of that man, okay? And remember, uh, if you guys remember what we talked about with the synagogue, um, that uh, Jesus would have been invited to teach there, so he was teaching, this guy comes in, and Jesus, in casting out the demon, um, and also in the way that he taught, uh, amazed the people at the authority that he had. In fact, in the passage it says, what type of new teaching is this? A teaching with authority, and he commands even the evil spirits, and they, they obey him. And so Jesus is already bridging the gap between not only what he's saying, but also what he's doing. Okay, And so, so he leaves the synagogue immediately, and he goes to Simon Peter's house. Okay, um, And so uh, I'm going to look at the historical context first, uh, just to let you guys just be a reminder. We already talked about... 
uh, the city that he was in, but he was in Capernaum. For those of you that weren't here uh, last week, that's in the north, uh, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a pretty large city. Um, had a synagogue and um, was a place of uh, fishing. And there was a centurion that lived there. Like it's a pretty large city, and so uh, more than likely, uh, Capernaum was Jesus's. Um, central uh, hub for his ministry, especially in the area surrounding the the uh, Sea of Galilee, and so this was kind of like his home base. Okay, he was obviously born in Nazareth, um, and uh, you can see that if you're like looking really closely down there, southwest of uh, uh, Capernaum. But um, this was where a lot of his disciples were also from. Obviously, Simon Peter, um, his brother Andrew, were from this city uh, because their house was there. Obviously, um, but. Uh, anyways, this is where we're at in Capernaum, okay? And that's kind of like a pulled-out uh, view with Egypt down there on the bottom. And then we're in the middle arrow right there, uh, right above Judea. And then uh, Mesopotamia is up above it. For those of you that weren't here last week, the, one of the reasons that Capernaum is a big city is because it was a major trade route between Mesopotamia, top one, and Egypt, the bottom one. And so the uh, Roman government uh, set up a toll booth there, so people that were passing through had to pay tolls. Um, and so it was, a, it was a larger city also because of that. There weren't a ton of roads back then, so these major trade routes. It's almost like that in the United States when, when people first came here, they set up shop really close to a river, something like that, because there was a lot of uh, trade going up and down the river. So um, now we have highways, um, so it was similar to that. This would be like a highway for them, except not exactly. Do you have a question? Yeah. Oh, centurion. It's a, a Roman soldier that was in charge of 100 soldiers or more, um, or around that much. Yeah, so he was, yeah, yeah, like a general. Okay. Okay, so um, I showed you this picture last time. The bottom arrow right there highlights where the synagogue was. Okay, and then the top arrow is actually a church that is built over the top of Simon Peter's house. Okay, or traditionally Simon Peter's house. We're going to talk about that tonight why more than likely this was um, uh, where Simon Peter's house was. So uh, this is a closer look at that church. And obviously you can see the runes here that they've kind of uh, excavated and uh, rebuilt. But uh, what we're going to look at where Jesus was, more than likely... Okay, okay so let me say this before, um, before anything. So when you're looking 2,000 plus years in history, okay, there's always people that have different theories. Okay, So... That doesn't mean that because there's like a couple of different theories that, that one or the other isn't right. In fact, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the archaeological finds of the, um, uh, from first century Palestine, when they, when they excavate them and, and, and they look at them, a lot of these have little minute details um, that, that almost guarantee that this is exactly where this place was. Okay? And you'll see whenever we start talking about this that more than likely this is exactly where um, Peter's house was uh, based on what happened at that site uh, just a few years after Jesus' death. Okay? So uh, this is a picture before that church was built. All right? And so you see, uh, um, see how these walls are built around and built around and built around. Okay, and then there's that centerpiece right there. Everybody see that? Okay, so um, so that is where uh, more than likely uh, the location, and I say more than likely. When I say more than likely, most likely, okay? Um, I don't want to say like absolutely because really we don't, we don't have Peter's foundation there and, and him writing on the side of it saying this is my house. You know, Peter was here, okay? However, there were markings and stuff. 
but we'll get to that here in a second. There were markings and stuff that they found on some of the stuff that they dug up um, that indicate that there was a church there. Okay, so um, immediately after the years of Jesus' death, the main room in the house was plastered and painted with floral designs, okay? Um, that wasn't normal back then. We're going to look at what a normal house looked like. It would not have been normal because that would have cost a little bit of money. In addition to that, it just wouldn't have been normal. So um, the entire uh, main room of that house was uh, covered in plaster. And um, so that shows that something, there was a reason why they did that. But in addition to that, regular household items were replaced with large storage jars and oil lamps. So this would not have been normal to have in a normal house. Okay. The reason that this is significant and that they've dug this up in this same area is that more than likely that means that there was a large group of people that met there, okay? And so that would, hence the um, large large jars and the large lamps, okay? And, of course, when I say lamps, I'm, and I don't have it tonight, but uh, the oil lamp that I've had here before, um, that's what we're talking about, that they filled that up with uh, olive oil mo- most of the time, and then they would have, like, a little wick, those types of lamps, um, Regular household items, oh, I already said that. Uh, and around the 4th or 5th century, an octagonal uh, mar- martyrium, um, I think that's how you pronounce it. If it's not, correct me later, okay, um, was built over the site. So that's what those uh, um, uh, octagonal shapes are, okay? Now, the significance in that is that, that that was an indication back then when they were built, they were built on a significant site. It was almost like a way of... Um, of uh, paying homage to that site. So there was a reason why the house was transitioned into some sort of meeting place, more than likely, for a large group of people, which indicates there was probably an early church there. And there's a reason that after that, um, that these, uh, uh, in the 4th and 5th century, that they built those octagons around that area because they built them around holy sites back then. You following me? Okay. So um, the, this is just kind of interesting. Okay, so you see the picture here. And you see this diagram? Um, you, you can't really see that. I'm sorry. Uh, so up here, it's the 1st century, 4th uh, century, and 5th century. So in the black, um, they've excavated and they like made a diagram of what they found that would have been 1st century, possibly around the time of Jesus. Okay? Um, but again, remember that these octagonal shapes were built a little bit later, just, just a couple of centuries later. Um, so um, in the 4th century, uh, yeah, in the 4th century, uh, they built... They built on and built these hatched marks here, okay? So, and then in the 5th century, that's when they built the octagonal shapes. You following me? So there's a reason why there was so much activity here, um, and more than likely it's because this was the actual site of Simon Peter's house. Okay, so this is where Jesus went after going to the synagogue. Um, Now, Simon Peter possibly could have had a nicer house than this, but this would have been a basic house um, for somebody in first century um, uh, Jerusalem. And so uh, if you guys can kind of see that, there's oftentimes two levels to it. They would sometimes have a courtyard and stuff outside of it. Um, We don't know. Obviously, there were different types and styles of houses. Some people say that there were pitched roofs. Some people say that there were flat roofs. There are probably a lot of different types of, um, of architectural features. But in general, this is what it looked like, okay? And so um, the, uh, oftentimes these families would um, store their animals in the lower level, and they would sleep in the upper level. 
um, and even the upper level. This would be a place where they would do like weaving and hanging out and so forth. Now, the reason that I'm telling you guys this is that oftentimes when we read scripture, if we just kind of blow past it, then we, we don't really get to uh, mind the depths of the beauty of what's going on in the passage. Okay, so when you think about Jesus going to Simon Peter's house, it's important, I think, to have some sort of a um, construct to be able to, to put together. Um, yes, it's an imagined um, um, image, but because of the archaeological finds, we have a pretty good idea of what these things looked like. And we have a pretty good idea of what these towns um, function like. And so um, when we have that in mind, then we can start to build um, the story a little bit better than just like looking at the, the, the minimal um, information that's given. Because back then, if you had received this in first, first century Palestine, you had received it, then you would have known exactly what it looked like because you would have been living it, right? But we don't have that luxury, unfortunately. Instead, we have to kind of constructed ourselves by the archaeological um, findings that they found and so forth. So um, when you think about this culture, you can't think about the culture that we're in right now. They were people just like us. They had emotions just like us. And you'll see in this passage when we look at it tonight that they had a lot of different emotions that were connected to them bringing these people to Jesus. But their way of life, their pace of life was much slower than ours. It was an agricultural um, uh, uh, culture, and so so it wasn't like us where we had a bunch of entertainment and you know like uh, that we could just go and distract ourselves. Most of the time, what they did, oh my goodness, it's crazy. They looked each other in the eyeballs and they had conversations. What? Yeah, right. Um, and so they would do that. But you also see that um, the oral tradition is a super important thing. Um, that that the the way that they shared stories with one another passed along memories and truths that they needed, right? And so there was a need for these conversations and there was a need for this slow pace of life and it just happened that that culture um, facilitated that, okay? And so I say that to say, he's leaving the synagogue. Remember, what day was it? The Sabbath. Okay, so he's leaving the synagogue on the Sabbath right after healing this man or casting this demon out and he goes to Simon Peter's house. And he hangs out there. Imagine that for a second. We read the uh, the scriptures oftentimes, and it's usually like boom, 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 and we think that everything's just like all clumped together. But a lot of times you got to build in the context around that. So, what do you think that Jesus was doing the rest of the day? Um, right. So that would have been um, more than likely what he's doing. He's resting, and remember the Sabbath was set aside so that people didn't work and partially to be reminded that that God is in control and that he's providing, but in addition to that, it was to facilitate their relationships with one another and that they could focus on family and the people around them. So if you imagine uh, uh, James, John, um, oh my gosh, yeah, uh, Peter, James, and John uh, were there, and then Andrew was there. There might have been some other disciples there, but in this passage it only mentions four, that those ended up being the three closest to him. Okay, There's a pretty high probability that um, Simon Peter's house was also a place where Jesus stayed when he was here. This passage indicates that because he actually falls asleep at the end of this passage and then wakes up early the next morning and leaves um, to a place of solitude to pray. And so so he more than likely stayed there. Um, and when he was in Capernaum, he more than likely, this was kind of like a hub for him. So you imagine the type of conversations that he had with the people in that household. We see that James's mother-in-law, I mean, Peter's mother-in-law um, is in the household. Their households also did not function like ours where it's usually one single family unit, 
a lot of times it was multiple family units. Do you guys understand what I mean by that? The extended families, a lot of times living together. And so Simon's, Simon's, uh, Simon Peter's um, mother-in-law is living here, and there are probably some other people that Jesus was very close with. And so he goes to their house. He hangs out for uh, the entire day. And then, um, uh, let me make sure I've covered everything. Uh, this is a picture. Um, okay, so this is just kind of interesting because you remember the story where uh, they dig through the roof um, and uh, lower the paralytic man down. Um, so a lot of times in these uh, houses, it would have been reeds. Um, or like pieces of branches, and then they would put clay on them, okay, uh, to kind of keep the rain out. Again, uh, this house indicates that, or it shows that it would be a pitched roof. Other people think that it's just a flat roof. It really doesn't matter. Um, I mean, it just is what it is, whether it's a pitched roof or not. Um, in the Old Testament, there were laws to have a, a ledge around the roof, so obviously that would be a flat roof um, because you wouldn't be walking around with a ledge on a pitched roof. Like, there wouldn't be a reason for that. Um, but anyways, uh, so that's kind of what the, the roofs oftentimes looked like. Um, okay, so now let's look at the literary context. Um, so it says uh, in verse 29, immediately he left the synagogue. So um, it all happened on the same day. It was uh, uh, the same day of Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 28. And remember the picture that I showed you? Synagogue was there. Peter's house was down there. It wasn't a super long distance away, okay? Um, but he goes to Peter's house and is more likely hanging out, uh, possibly having uh, the special meals that they were supposed to have on the Sabbath um, and having conversation and just being with those people. Okay, this is the beginning of his ministry. Remember that a lot of Jesus' ministry was, was built on relationship, especially with those, those closely knit three um, that were closest to him, but then the 12 disciples that would ultimately carry on his mission. So imagine how much time that we don't see in Scripture that he invested in conversation and teaching and loving and caring for them. That more than likely happened in the, the in-betweens that we don't see. The quality time of sitting and sharing meals with them on Sabbaths just like this. Like we go home on Sundays oftentimes as families and we sit around at dinner table and we enjoy time together. Stuff like that. Okay? He wasn't some distant like, you come to me whenever you're ready to learn. No, he was very much engaged um, and very much relational. And you'll see that, um, that he cares deeply for these people. Um, so the next part says, he entered the house of Simon um, and Andrew. Uh, so Jesus' ministry was primarily relational. I've already said that. Um, and Peter's uh, house may have been Jesus' ministry hub. Again, Capernaum was a place where he spent a lot of time and then in the surrounding regions of Galilee. Okay? Now you guys are filling in the blanks, so I'll give you a couple seconds to fill those in. Yes? Do what? Number one? Uh, Mark, yeah, one, 21 through 28. Okay. So last week we... Uh, we mentioned, so um, I, I kind of alluded to this passage, that Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. So if Simon has a mother-in-law, what does that mean about Simon Peter? Mary. Yes, yes. So Simon uh, Peter was married um, in 1 Corinthians 9.5. Paul actually alludes to this when he says, and Cephas is another word for uh, Peter, um, but he says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So, um, so we see that, that, that Peter took his wife on missionary journeys. And then Clement of Alexandria, actually, um, he uh, claimed, and not claimed like meaning like he just kind of pulled this out of nowhere, but like church history um, uh, 
uh, tradition says that Peter's wife was actually martyred before him. Um, which, when you start putting these pieces together, this is going to happen in the future, right? So he's hanging out with Jesus right now in the present, and, and he has no idea that what's ahead of him. No idea. And again, the sacrifice of giving himself over to the mission that, that the kingdom of God is at hand and he's following this man, Jesus Christ, this rabbi, not knowing what it's going to bring him. And if you can imagine, like years of being with Jesus Christ and then years of planting churches with his wife and then watching his wife be killed for her faith before he was even killed himself. Like, can you imagine how heartbreaking that would be and how much of a sacrifice that is? Like, these were real people with real relationships with people that they love deeply and sacrifice greatly for. Okay, so I don't know. Um, scripture isn't clear about that. Uh, we might assume uh, that, that some of them probably did have kids, um, and I won't go into all the details about that, but um, you know, if you have a wife and back then without contraception and stuff, um, there were ways of preventing getting pregnant, but... Uh, more than likely, like I would assume that, that a lot of them maybe had kids. But I, do what? I don't know. And this is what, these are good questions though, because like a lot of times, if you're like me, like we dehumanize these people, and they're like, oh, they were like super saints, right? Or they were like, they were just like, kind of like aloof from the, the realities of life, like they didn't really feel the pain. But like the reality is, is that they did. That this man was married before he even chose to follow Jesus Christ. And so they come to this house, and um, Simon Peter's uh, mother-in-law is ill. And uh, so he said to him, um, uh, okay, and then and immediately, and I, I underline that again, um, because it, remember, that's a literary feature in Mark where it's like, and immediately Jesus did this, and immediately they did this, and immediately did the, they did this. He's setting a pace of urgency that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, right? So immediately they told him about her, um, that's Simon's mother-in-law, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Okay, so and lifted her up, like literally means raised her up. And so um, the early church quite possibly um, would have understood that as a foreshadowing of what's to come, where Jesus Christ is raised to life. Okay, we again, like with our English translation, sometimes miss nuances like that. But more than likely, when they're reading it and they know where this story is going, they would have thought, oh, like this is a foreshadowing of um, Jesus Christ, right? And so uh, what's really cool about uh, Jesus um, doing what he did, it's showing that he has complete authority over illness, okay? And then in addition to that, he had compassion on all people, not just the elite. In that day and age, women, unfortunately, um, didn't, didn't have a really high standing in culture, okay? And so, so you'll see through uh, Jesus' ministry that he engages women, not gets engaged, but he engages them in conversation and um, in healing them and doing various things for them. In addition to that, he, uh, he reaches out and touches lepers and so forth, things that, that a rabbi would have never done or even like a, a, a good Jewish man would have never done. Okay, And yet here Jesus is at the very beginning of his ministry healing a woman. Now for us, it's like we don't really understand the cultural um, like significance to that. Um, and, and again, that's a nuance from their culture to our culture that we sometimes are, are missing. But this would have, this probably not like, like, 
and somebody falls over backwards because they're so shocked, but they would have realized that that's interesting, right? That that's, that's uh, unique, that this man um, uh, healed this woman and that he cared about this woman, okay? And so um, he shows that he has complete authority over the illness because it wasn't that she got sort of well. It wasn't that, that he had to try multiple times. It was just that, like, he took her by the hand, he raised her up, and then she began to serve them which is obviously, um, uh, you know, it shows that he has complete authority over that. Now, he's already cast the demon out. Now, let's pause for a second because think about this. All right, so he's hanging out in Simon Peter's house. Okay, he's having a good conversation with them, sharing a meal probably, doing whatever. He's chilling. Where do you think the rest of the people in the town are? They're probably at their houses. Yeah, okay. So more than likely, they're at their houses. More than likely, they're observing the Sabbath too. In fact, we'll see here in a second that like most, most likely they were observing the Sabbath because of the time that they brought these people to them. So they're hanging out. What had happened at the synagogue? Do you remember? Cast the demon out um, of this man. So he cast the demon out of this man. He's in this, this, this city that like on our scale probably wasn't that big, but it was a city back then. In this city, and these people head back to their houses. Now, what do you think that they were talking about? More than likely. I'm, now, I'm speculating here. Demon that cast, that Jesus cast out. Exactly. Like, who wouldn't talk about that? Because they were already, it shows that they were amazed. And then in addition to that, it said that his fame spread all around Galilee. Okay? And so, so people, by word of mouth, were sharing, more than likely what had happened at the synagogue. Now, how do we know that? Well, because of what's... Do what? That is what we would do, but in addition to that, like that adds even more validity to that, let's look at what happens. Okay, so again, pressing the pause button on the Sabbath day, and then this happens. That evening at sundown, what's significant about that? When did the Sabbath start? Friday. Sundown on Friday, when did it end? Okay, so when is this? Saturday. Okay, so this is significant because these people were observing the Sabbath more than likely, and then uh, the sun goes down, so the Sabbath is over at that point. It would have been unlawful for people to be healed. It would have been unlawful for them to walk a certain distance. It would have been unlawful for them to obviously carry somebody to Jesus because that would have been considered work. But when can you imagine the expectation after people were saying there's this man in town Jesus of Nazareth that was at the synagogue and, and he, he cast this demon out of this man and he taught with authority and it's something that we've not heard before. And so these people are having these conversations around the cooking pot. You know, like hanging out with mom and dad. Like, did you hear what happened at the synagogue? Do you think that, that he might be able to like heal like Billy? I don't know. That's a terrible, that's not like a Jewish name, but whatever. Uh, Josephus? Okay. Do you think that, okay, so you, you hear that, that, that like, or we see that there's an expectation that like people are waiting for the sun to go down. Because immediately when the sun goes down, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. Pretty cool. Do you have a question? Yeah. Um, were they like, allowed to walk from the synagogue to their houses? Yeah, so there's a, there was a certain length of... Now, that's a good question. There's a certain length of um, distance, again, that we talked about with the oral law that would have been considered um, work. And so as long as they didn't walk further than that, then they were fine. 
right? But to, to carry somebody to him, but in addition to that, healing on the Sabbath would have been un, unlawful. Um, and I put that in quotations because Jesus healed oftentimes on the Sabbath to kind of show that, like, hey, like this is for you people, not so that, that you can cross the T's and dot the I's so that God will be pleased with you, okay? And so it's okay to heal on the Sabbath and to restore health on the Sabbath. Okay, so... Let's keep uh, moving along. So that evening at sundown, we already talked about that. So it would be unlawful to heal on the Sabbath and do other work such as travel a certain distance or carry the ill person to Jesus. So that's next um, blank for you. Okay. So then we see um, that they brought all who were sick um, or oppressed by demons. Now, remember last time I talked about how a lot of times people said, well, they were just superstitious and everything that would have been illness to us that we know now is medical, they would have just said a demon's taken over him, right? But in reality, we see in Scripture that it differentiates all the time between something that is a natural illness and something that is a demonic illness. And so, um, so it's important because a lot of times people will try to discredit Scripture because they're like, oh, there's a bunch of superstitious people. They didn't know what they were talking about. They weren't intelligent. They were a bunch of, like, you know, hillbillies um, in the middle of nowhere. And so they, they thought demons were attacking them when they really weren't and so forth, and they tried to discredit it. But we, we have to remember that these men and women, a lot of them were highly educated. A lot of them were very smart. And a lot of them, like, even though they weren't enlightened after the Enlightenment, doesn't mean that they were dumb. It absolutely does not mean that they were dumb. And so these people and the people in Scripture that write Scriptures and God um, breathing that through them, that it is, it is um, intelligent and it is oftentimes very specific um, instead of this broad stroke of every illness is demonic. Did you have a question? That's a good question. Okay, so um, when we look at Scripture and we see Jesus' kingdom coming, right, there, there, you can look at Scripture and it does seem like this, especially in the Gospels, um, that there's more demonic activity going on. And that would make complete sense because, again, we talked about how Jesus' kingdom crashes into the kingdom of darkness. And so Satan's not going to give up territory without a fight. And so, so there's this clashing back and forth. And you see his kingdom trying to engage Jesus at times. We see even at the beginning of Mark that, that Satan engages Jesus and tries to tempt him to, to, um, to turn his eyes away from what God had set before him. And so, so we see that, and then we see multiple times demonic people that just confront Jesus. And then these demons know who Jesus is. And they oftentimes are trying to, um, for whatever reason trying to exclaim, like, we know what you're doing. You know, you're the son of God. You're here to... And so, like, you imagine, like, the, the frightening atmosphere of that, right? And Jesus, time and time again, in fact, here in a second, says at the end that he tells them to be quiet, that, that they weren't to speak who he was. And so we'll talk about that here in a second. So to answer your question, like, I, I would say this. I would say that Scripture, especially in the Gospels, um, there's a lot of demonic activity, and I think that that's because Jesus' kingdom was crashing into the kingdom of darkness. We continue to see demonic activity in Acts and so forth, okay? So it's not like it stops. And then in uh, our modern context, a lot of times in other cultures, um, there's still very overt demonic activity, whereas in our culture, 
I think personally um, that, and I, you know, there's people with different opinions, but I think personally that that Satan deceiving us that he's not real um, is his tactic in our culture to just basically tempt us and to cause us to turn our hearts away from God. And he uses all sorts of tactics to do that. Whereas in another culture um, that are maybe more open to the supernatural and maybe more open, like for instance, when I was in Niger. Um, there, and I don't want to get into a bunch of storytelling, but like there was overt things that happened in Niger that I've never experienced before. And I think that it makes sense because of the, um, again, the, uh, the battle that's going on, especially in that region. Um, and people being, uh, much more open to like black arts and like witchcraft and stuff like that, that, um, that accesses that demonic stuff in ways that maybe in our culture oftentimes kind of flies underneath the radar. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Um, and for those of you guys, this is just a little tidbit. Um, if you're ever like afraid that you're going to be demon-possessed after watching some movie, if you're a Christian, we know that the Holy Spirit indwells us and that we are now God's possession. And so you cannot be possessed um, based on Scripture. You cannot be possessed by a demon um, if you've accepted Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Okay? And so, so we can be um, affected by like demons and like, and, and I don't know how all this works, but we can be tempted by them. We can be affected by them. We see throughout Scripture that they manifest themselves in different ways. They manifest themselves in physical illness at times, like in natural disasters. They manifest themselves. There's multiple ways that they manifest themselves. But it's important to remember that Scripture says sometimes it's that, but sometimes it's just natural because of the fall. Because of sin, because of that, the, the, what it what it wreaks havoc on in our world. Okay, you guys following me? Okay, good question. No, that's, it's okay. That's not off topic. Yeah, it's a good question because we're actually about to talk a little bit about that. Okay. Um, so the next part uh, it says the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Okay, so. Um, Jesus had compassion on them um, and healed them. And uh, the Greek here is imperfect, which to, for those of you guys that care about that, that just means that like, it, it basically communicates that they kept bringing him people. So it was like this. Like, like it wasn't just like everybody just showed up. Like it was like, I mean, everybody did show up, but um, that they just kept bringing him people. Kind of like a yeah, kind of like a doctor. Yeah. Um, but think about this, okay? Like just think about the expectations of, let's say, so many families that were at the synagogue and saw that and like they had an ill person in their house and they're like, I wonder if he could do the same for him. Then they go and then Jesus heals them. Now imagine how quickly the word would spread like wildfire at that point. Right? Then they bring more people, people that maybe didn't even hear about what happened in the synagogue, bring them, they get healed and it's and it just keeps spreading they keep bringing more and more people. Imagine, just imagine if you were one of the disciples hanging out in that house that night. I don't know about you guys, but I would probably sit there the entire night just like, like are you like are you seeing this, dude? Like I would be like just bugging out. Like this is awesome. 
Like, are you, are you, like, John, look at this. Like, that guy just, like, and who knows, if, if that, that was their hometown, they probably knew a lot of these people. And here Jesus comes in, he's healing people and casting out demons. Like, so, so a lot of times we read this and it's just like, oh yeah, that's what Jesus did. But like really think about the effect that had on the people, not only that were healed, but the people that were sitting there watching. And how amazing that would be. And that these were signs pointing to something, a greater truth. Not just so that he could be like, hey, look at me, pull a bunny out of a hat. No, like these were signs pointing to his divinity. These were signs pointing to the kingdom of God was at hand. These are signs that were pointing to his messianic promises. And so when people were seeing this, they were beginning to take notice and like, whoa, like this is completely new and different. This is not what we've experienced before. What is this? This is amazing. And can you imagine the hope that was surging in that room? Something new is happening. 400 plus years of silence from God is like something's happening. That's awesome. Okay. And so he... He has compassion on all of them. Now, I don't know how late in the evening they went. doesn't really matter. More than likely, it was pretty late, okay? Because it wasn't like that Jesus was just like, okay, all you masses, like, you're healed, get out of here, right? But, so he, he heals them in the evening, and here in a minute, we're going to see that, yes, like, like he stays there, and then he wakes up, and he, he leaves early in the morning. Did you have a question? Yeah. you think your reaction would be different, like, because you've seen, like, you know, like, you have all of the New Testament to look at and the Old Testament yeah i think that yeah i think that that's a good question i think that um our understanding of like all the scriptures put together would make it a little bit different for us yeah um but i think that in the moment uh all of us would probably have a pretty similar reaction of like like whoa like this is awesome like you know a reaction that you have now this is maybe not a good way of pulling like a parallel here but because i talked about pulling a bunny out of hat anybody ever watch like david copperfield like disappear like a a spaceship or something on tv like no you guys are like who's david copperfield old people in the room what up (laughs) okay um david blaine yeah david blaine walking on water or whatever i don't know what he does oh he caught a bullet in his mouth david blaine just does a bunch of crazy stuff the, that guy, the habanero effect. Um, anyways, okay, so when we see something amazing, like more, more often than not, we're like, whoa, like right after that. Like, how did he do that, right? But imagine, like we know that that person's a magician and that it's like, okay, well, it's probably just smoke and mirrors. But imagine like seeing your aunt or your, like your friend get healed of something that you knew, like had been, they've been dealing with for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Because that's something you can't fake. Yeah, yeah. Like there would be an awe, right? Like that would literally be awesome. Yeah. yeah.
part of it being that they were healed and their mouth dropped open, but also being able to like talk to him and be like, this is the guy that everybody's talking about. And yeah, yeah. Like, it was personal. Yeah, yeah. Like what we think about when meeting a famous person or something, like where we're just like, this is them, like right in front mm -hmm. of us. And so everybody got that interaction one-on-one -on -one with him because mm -hmm. he didn't just heal the masses. He did it probably one by one. Yeah, yeah. And think about how intense like and beautiful his interactions with those people were. So you see in Scripture multiple times where he's like, your sins have been forgiven, right? Like when he heals somebody. I would not be surprised, we don't have it in this passage, but I would not be surprised if he was also doing that in this, this moment and in other moments where he's healing masses like this. Where he's like, child, your sins are forgiven. Or go and sin no more. Things that, that again, like couldn't be recorded in Scripture because it would just fill volumes and volumes and volumes of all the libraries, right? So these, these moments that we see, these snapshots... Like, give us a little bit of a picture of what more than likely was going on in this, 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 uh, this passage. Okay? Now, when we're building a context like this, remember, okay, that we can always have some sort of misconception about it. Okay? Because we don't have a, a, a specific thing that says, okay, this is exactly what happened. But when you look at all of Scripture and you look at what Jesus did in different healing scenarios, you can be pretty certain of what probably was going on in these scenarios, such as like those personal, like personal interactions with people and so forth. Did you have a question? Who was it? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so you said like God was having like 400 years. Mm -hmm. Where do you think people went when they died if he was having like That's a big question. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on that question um, because that's a really big question. Uh, but what I mean by that is that there hadn't been a prophet, right? Now, John the Baptist was the first prophet after hundreds of years. Um, so, like, they did have, like, God's truth in the law and also the prophets that had been written at that point. But for 400 years, like, silence. Um, and then all of a sudden, like, busting on the scene, John the Baptist, hey, repent, and then Jesus. Well, stuff was happening. It's what happening in, like, massive volumes like this. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So let me, let me uh, jump through uh, the last little part of this. Uh, he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So this is what we call the messianic secret. Okay, um, And so uh, you'll see this throughout Scripture. You'll see this throughout Scripture where uh, Jesus won't allow these demons to speak even though they know who he is. And he'll tell them to be quiet. Now that's kind of confusing, right? Well, this is maybe some of the reasons that he did that. There was probably more reasons, but this is some of the reasons that he did that. Jesus' identity would not be fully understood um, until his death and resurrection. You see that even with his disciples, that they were still confused about who Jesus was, even until his death. And then when he was resurrected, it was like the, the scales were removed from their eyes. Of course, they received the Holy Spirit that probably helped them as well understand who Jesus really was. But that his total identity wasn't completely understood. He spoke in parables a lot of times. There was like people that understood those, and then there were other people that couldn't understand them. So there's this like this weird tension here, okay? And so part of it's that that it couldn't be fully understood um, prior to the uh, death and resurrection. Another one is that Jesus revealed himself on his terms, not Satan's. And so these demons, for whatever reason, were screaming out that Jesus, Son of God, or whatever, and and it wasn't time yet. And so Jesus told them to be quiet, and they had to they had to uh, follow his command because he is the son of God. And then his messianic identity may have been muddied if demons were proclaiming it. Now, that could have been confusing, right? Um, like, okay, all these demons are saying a bunch of stuff about this man, right? And in fact, there was a, there was a parts in Scripture where, where people uh, claimed that Jesus was actually working on behalf of Satan's kingdom. Um, and this might be part of the reason that they said that, but, like, we don't know that. 
but this was another reason why he might have um, silenced them because it wouldn't have been a uh, good PR uh, for um, for demons to be proclaiming that he's the Messiah instead of people and God. Yeah. So could like be like how we like how God talks to us could like the demons talk to other people who, like tell this or are they like voicing themselves through people who tell that like because it said like if the demons would have been proclaiming it and like telling people this, how would they well, a lot of times audibly. Like, so a lot of these people were demon-possessed, so they had taken control of their bodies. And so, like, that is somewhat, like, of a reality that a lot of the stuff that we see in Hollywood is not a reality. But um, that a lot of times they took control of their bodies and, like, those people didn't have control over what they said or what they did, okay, when the demon was uh, possessing them. So a lot of times they would be speaking through the person. Yeah. That's a good question. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big uh, um, $10 theological word there. Okay. Let's do this real quick application. Um, so in looking at this passage, we see that these people were expectant of Jesus Christ, expectant um, of what was to come, and so they were excited. They had talked about what happened at the synagogue more than likely. They show up on his doorstep right when they were able to, and then Jesus starts healing them. In, a, in addition to that, these people brought their needs to Jesus. They could have stayed at home. It took a step of faith for them to pick up Billy Joe off the ground that can't walk and carry him to Jesus, right? That there was a step of faith there and they said, no, like we're going to take our needs to him because like he's not getting better. And so they take him. Um, and so the questions of, uh, out of those two is, are you expectant of what Jesus can do in your life? And then are you willing to bring your needs to him? And then, specifically, what need do you have that he is inviting you to bring to him? And so let's put this in context of what's going on today, and then I'm going to close this in prayer. We don't have to um, look very far in our world, especially over the past few weeks, to see that there's a lot of need, a lot of brokenness, a lot of sadness. And so, so we have a choice as to what we do with those things. We have a choice. And the beautiful thing about this passage is that Jesus shows compassion. He, sh- he shows that, that he does care about these people and he heals them and he liberates them from these things that have been causing them turmoil. And I'm not saying necessarily, even though Jesus can miraculously heal and miraculously deliver us from things, I'm not saying that every time that we bring our need to Jesus that it just disappears like that. But what I am saying is that we serve a Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves us and cares about us and cares about those needs in our lives and wants us to be able to come to Him and to find our answers in Him. It's an awesome promise and an awesome, beautiful thing that this man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, like time and time again, shows so much deep compassion for the people around Him. And oftentimes, if you're like me, I don't, I don't take full advantage of that. I don't believe that He has that type of compassion for me or that I'm bothering Him with something small. We talked about in the men's small group... Um, about praying for tests and how sometimes we find that insignificant. So we just don't. But somebody, and I can't remember who it was, prayed for it. Okay. Connor prayed for it, a test or homework, one of the two, um, and like ended up getting a good grade on it. And so we talked about how like cool it is that like God does care about that. Like there's a lot of stuff going on in the world, right? And and yet like he still cares about like grades. He still cares about like what's important to, to Connor. 
And so these needs that we have, like we have the, the opportunity and the privilege to be able to bring them to him and to, to lay them at his feet and say, please help, whatever it is. That's so cool. And then like it's so, um, I don't know. Like when I was singing over there, like in thinking about everything that's been shared, like even tonight what Jason shared with me or um, with, uh, um, now I'm forgetting, Prater. Uh, with Prater and so forth, that we serve a Savior that wants us to come to Him. And He wants to embrace us. He wants to love us and show compassion. He knows what it's like to lose friends. He knows what it's like to lose family members. And I'm not saying that to belittle our hurt and our pain, but I'm saying that as a, a place of hope and a place of security and safety that we have as Christians that non-Christians don't. So when we enter into that, we can experience that and we can, we can invite others into it as well and go back and share what Jesus did in my life. Won't you come and see him? See what He can do in your life. So let me pray for us, and then um, we'll be dismissed. If you guys can help me pick up uh, um, trash and stuff. While I'm thinking about it, two things. We're going on fall break, so that means that uh, next Wednesday we won't have LSM. Sunday night, we will not have um, community groups. Sunday morning, we will have Sunday school and regular uh, service. Um, and David and Jason will be leading out on Sunday morning down here in the um, the Bible study along with Aaron. She's going to be helping as well. Um, so uh, make sure that you're here Sunday morning, but remember that Sunday night um, and Wednesday night we won't. And then that following Sunday is the October the 8th, which is deadline for extreme winter. It's the T-shirt deadline, and it's also um, our first Sunday funtivity at the Corn Maze. Okay? All right. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for tonight. I pray, Lord, that you'll just bless each student in this room and that you will... Um, Help us to be aware of what's going on in our hearts and our minds. And when we do have needs, um, that we would remember that you are so compassionate and that you desire us to come to you and share those with you. And God, we know that you are able to give complete deliverance, so we do pray for that. Um, But we pray also that um, if you don't give complete deliverance, all of a sudden that you still give comfort and you still give hope and you still give truth in the midst of our hurt and our pain. And I thank you for the promise that you draw close to the brokenhearted. I know that there's a lot of hearts in this room that are heavy and hurting and I just pray, Lord, that um, that you will comfort them and that you will uh, strengthen them in this season. Um, Lord, I praise you. I thank you for the time that you've given us together tonight and I pray that you will continue to be lifted high. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.